Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 12, How Do Birds Get Their Names? So, if you're like most people, you'll have some idea of what your local birds are called. I live in Canberra, and we have a butt-ton of birds that strut around our suburban streets. We got galahs and cockatoos, kookaburras and king parrots, rosellas, wagtails, thornbills, silver eyes, magpies, magpie larks, swallows, fairy wrens, the list goes on and on. And that's before you even get out to the national parks. And you know, it's really handy, things having names. When I see a bird, instead of just pointing and making a grunting noise, I can label it with a name, which is ever so much more civilised than the alternative. But have you ever stopped to wonder how birds got their names? But then, why would we even care? The answer probably isn't even that remarkable. Surely people living in one place just called a bird something based on how it looked while... People living somewhere else gave the same bird a different name because of some other feature it had. Enough time goes by, one name becomes more popular, and it ends up being the name that we know that particular bird by today. It's all happenstance, right? And furthermore, you may well say, it doesn't matter what we call something. The sounds we make with our mouths to label things are largely arbitrary. 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 Arbit- why can't I say that word? Arbitrary. Arb- arbitrary. Arbitrary. Hence the fact that we have different languages. What matters isn't so much what we call things. What matters is that we all agree it's called the same thing. Language works when we have agreement that certain sounds mean certain things. When I point to a winged flying creature and say bird, communication has only been successful if Within your mind, you have at least an approximate image of the same winged, feathered thing that exists in the real world. If, however, I say the word bird and you start thinking about a snake, communication has failed and we should probably find a different word so we can at least agree that we're talking about the same thing. Agreement! That's the only thing that matters, and we can call stuff whatever the hell we want, as long as we all agree. And in the main, yes... Birds have names that are largely arbitrary that came about through happenstance. Hey, I said it that time. But you probably know it's going to be more complicated than that, or I wouldn't have started talking about it. Well, everything I've said is true. It is also true that every bird has one official name and one official name only, at least in English. But who decides on what that name is? Is there a system to how birds are given names? Are there rules? Can they be broken? Is there any controversy? Well, the answer to all those questions is yes. And it turns out there is an entire world of bird naming hijinks going on behind the scenes that you never knew existed. And today, I'm going to introduce you to that world of hijinks. It is a world that I stumbled into quite by accident some time ago when I happened upon an unlikely Twitter flame war centred on an unassuming bird. Back then, that bird was known as McCown's Longspur. Now, if I was to show you a picture of McCown's Longspur, you would say, why are you showing me a picture of a sparrow? How did you get into my house? Please put that knife down. 
To which I would say, I'll put the knife down as soon as you stop giving me sass and appreciate the pretty bird I'm showing you, you're welcome. And indeed, I will grant you, they look remarkably sparrow-like. They aren't technically in the same family of New World sparrows, but they are closely related. As their name suggests, their most distinguishing feature is their rather long spur, and these are just particularly long claws on their toes. Other than that, there isn't anything too remarkable about this little bird that lives on the American prairie. To get to the bottom of why this bird was causing such a hubbub, we need to understand where its name came from. McCown. Who is this McCown that supposedly owns this bird? Well, that would be one John P. McCown, born 1815. During the 1850s, he was manifesting American destiny as the fledgling nation pushed further and further westward into the totally empty plains of the American interior. Whilst out on the prairie one day, he shot an innocent-looking bird that he'd never seen before. Being an amateur ornithologist himself, he knew it was no normal sparrow. So he did what any of us would do. He popped it into an envelope and mailed it back east to a professional ornithologist, his friend, one George Lawrence, who confirmed that he had spotted, uh, shot, murdered a hitherto unknown bird. For his troubles, McCown got this little bird named after him, and ever since it has been known as McCown's Long Spur. Now, there are many birds that bear people's names, and we'll get into that in a bit. For now, all you need to know is that this style of naming is called an honorific name or an eponymous name. I'm going to go with honorific because it's easier to say and because in a sense it is meant as an honor for that person. Throwing the possessive on the end of the name does kind of make it sound like McCown owns the bird. Now, arguably, John McCown hasn't owned anything since 1879, when he died. And even when he was alive, can you really own any wild bird, let alone its entire species? They're such free-spirited things. If anything, it's they who own our hearts. I'm sorry, what was I saying? Oh yes, under normal circumstances, this is how our story would end. Man sees bird, man shoots bird, bird is a new species, man gets bird named after him. But if we fast forward a decade to the 1860s, we'll find that the United States was having an argument about whether those states were going to stay united or not. Today, we call that argument the American Civil War. I think they might have called it the American Civil War uh, at the time as well. Um, uh, we can fact check that later. By now, you can probably guess where this is going. Turns out our old friend Johnny P is our old friend no more, for he fought as a general in the Confederate Army, and by all accounts was quite pro-slavery. Fast forward another 160 years, and with the recent tension in the United States around honouring Confederate figures, a push was being made to get this name off this bird. Predictably enough, that had generated something of a backlash, with people claiming it was yet another example of cancel culture run amok. We'll come back to how the story of McCown's long spur panned out later. But in that moment, on that social media platform, I had questions. Just how does a bird get its name in the first place? Well, it's complicated. In our Longspurs case, George Lawrence named that bird, but there is still an overarching authority that gives those names official status. 
who is that authority? We actually met them last week, those four competing authorities that lay claim to having the final word on which bird is and isn't a species. And for the most part, they're also the ones who decide what birds get called what. And now, each country as well does things a little different. For example, in the United States, they have the American Ornithological Society, which does the naming of their birds. Well, in Australia, I think we use an Australian version of BirdLife International's checklist. But we want the overarching global view here, and for the most part, it is those four organisations we met last week. BirdLife, Clements, which does eBird, Howard and Moore, and the International Ornithologists' Congress. So do they have guidelines when they go to name a bird? Do they ever? For today's purposes, we're going to look at the International Ornithologists' Congress, the IOC, and their method of naming birds. Now, they have 10 guidelines when it comes to naming birds. Just like Moses coming down from the mountain, the IOC has gifted us 10 commandments by which to name a bird. And I am now going to list them. Commandment 1, thou shalt grant each bird one name and one name only. We don't want our birds to be known by more than one name. That would be confusing. Commandment 2, thou shalt make each name unique. We don't want two birds to share the same name. That would be confusing. Commandment 3, it is deemed that anglicized names are okay. Um, colonialism? Question mark? Commandment 4, pre-existing names shall prevail. If a bird is already known by a widespread recognized name, it should continue to be known by that name. Let's not make changes for the sake of change here. Commandment 5, thou shall not favour local names. Basically, if the bird is known by a name, but only in certain specific locations, that doesn't get favoured over more widespread common names. Commandment 6, if thy bird's name be offensive, it may be changed. Basically, if a bird has an offensive name, it can be changed. We'll come back to this point. Commandment 7, honorary names are acceptable. We're chill with having birds named after people. Commandment 8, brevity is the soul of wit. Keep the names as short as possible. Next is my personal favourite, Commandment 9, thou shalt not use the word island unless totally necessary. The IOC just really hates using the word island as part of a bird's name. Go figure. That's why we have the Christmas Imperial Pigeon and not the Christmas Island Imperial Pigeon. We don't like having the word island in our names. It causes confusion, so it gets struck out. Even though this pigeon is called the Christmas Pigeon because it comes from Christmas Island and has nothing to do with the festive season. Yet personally, I think it would be less confusing if we knew it was called Christmas because it came from the island and not because of Jesus' birth, but hey, what do I know? 
And sometimes they don't care, because we also have the inaccessible island rail. Apparently in that case they decided it was fine, because without the word island in there you might get confused and think that the rail itself was inaccessible. When really, it isn't, it's just the name of the island that it lives on. Inaccessible island. Which is actually very inaccessible being a tiny spit in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So I suppose that does make the rail inaccessible by default? Wait, how is this removing confusion? Commandment 10, birds in the same genus may have different group names. Okay, that last one is a little complicated and honestly leads to yet more confusion. What it basically means is that if you have a group of birds that are closely related, so they're all in the same genus, even though they are in the same genus, they don't have to have the same type of name. Maybe we need an example for this one. So in Australia, we have a delightful black and white bird called the Willy Wagtail, so named because of the amusing way it wags its tail back and forth as it flits about hunting insects. They're well known for their bolshy, brave behaviour, they're more than willing to attack birds many times their size to drive them out of their territory. Now, the genus it belongs to are fantails. They all have distinctive long fantails, willy wagtail included. There are over 50 birds in this genus, and every one of them has the word fantail in its name. You've got the black fantail, the spotted fantail, the Philippine pied fantail, you get it. All of them are known as fantails except the willy wagtail, even though it's in the same genus. But according to Commandment 10, that's okay, it's allowed to have a different name. Of course, there is another genus of birds that are known as wagtails, and all of them are called wagtails, but the willy wagtail isn't a wagtail, it's a fantail. Like I said, it can get confusing. It's like they came up with a system that made sense and then threw in a lot of exceptions just to keep everyone on their toes. And in part, it's a consequence of trying to keep things simple. So with the Willy Wagtail, Commandment 4 and 10, they kind of help each other out. Commandment 4 says, if a bird has a widespread common name, we're going to try to keep it. Of course, that's naturally going to lead to inconsistent naming conventions with birds that belong to the same family group that have different names because of historical happenstance. So as a consequence, we get Commandment 10 that says, yes, I know Commandment 4 creates confusion, but it's okay, just go with it. And there are all sorts of crazy exceptions and cases that make no sense, and don't worry, I've got more to point out. But for the minute, let's be generous and look at how the system does work when everything is working. For the most part, these rules lead to most birds being given two names, if you also count hyphenating. And you can think of these names as functioning exactly like our own names. You get a personal name and a family name. A personal name is generally descriptive. It describes some feature of the bird. It could be where you find it geographically. The northern cardinal lives in the north. What colour it is? The crimson rosella is a rather red bird. Or some other feature that it might have. The crested pigeon, funnily enough, has a crest on its head. Then the second name usually tells you what family the bird belongs to. The northern cardinal is a cardinal, crimson rosella is a rosella, the crested pigeon is a pigeon, the woolly wagtail is a fantail. Hey, the system mostly works. 
Now, the majority of birds follow that system. It's nice and simple. It makes sense. But there are exceptions. Some birds only have one name. They're like the Madonna of the bird world. Usually, birds that only have one name are known by their original indigenous name. So, in Australia, we have the emu and galah. Both birds have indigenous names, but the same is true around the world. In New Zealand, you have the kia and the kakapo. You have the iivi in Hawaii and the Watson in South America. All indigenous names, and that's all good and well. But a consequence of Commandment Four. Is that you can have all sorts of birds that buck the other rules, just so long as their name was widespread and common first, like the many-coloured rush tyrant, which has four words in its name. Although to be fair, it does have many colours. It does live in rushes, and it is tyrannical in nature. Wait, no, it isn't. It's a tiny, cute little thing. Why is it called a tyrant? Wait, I have questions. We don't have time to get into that. But then there are birds with just crazy long names, like the bare-faced go-away bird. And even though it has five words in its name and it's anything but brief, it is still following the same naming convention. The first part of its name is descriptive, bare-faced. It has no feathers on its head. It is bare-faced. And the second part of its name, go-away bird, is the family of birds it belongs to, which is actually itself descriptive too. The go-away birds are a strange family that live in Africa, so named because their call supposedly sounds like someone saying "go away." Roll the audio. I mean, I guess I kind of hear it, and that's another form bird names can take on a monopeak based on the sound they make. The most famous example is, of course, the cuckoo. But two of my favourites are the kill deer. And the Jackie Winter. Now, as wonderful as all these naming conventions are, and they are wonderful, it doesn't mean things can't go awry. Sometimes birds can have wildly misleading names. Take, for instance, the Connecticut warbler. From the name, we would naturally assume that this bird would be found in Connecticut. But in that assumption, you would be very wrong. These birds don't live anywhere near Connecticut. They're really more of a Canadian warbler, but at least they are a warbler. The olive warbler, by comparison, is misnamed twice. Not only is it not olive in colour, it's really more of an orange, but it isn't even a warbler. It's more closely related to finches. If anything, it should be called the orange finch. It also doesn't have anything to do with olive plants. It had two chances, two, for its name to make sense, and it missed twice. And then there are instances where the bird isn't misnamed necessarily, but confusion still runs rife. Take the European robin and the American robin and the Australian robins. All of them are robins. None of them are related to each other. Or wrens. Again, there are at least six different families of birds that use the name wren. None of them related to each other. You know, what is a wren? It's kind of whatever you want it to be. Or the Australian magpie. Yeah, it's a magpie, all right, but it's not related to the magpie family. So how did all of this happen? Well, it's mainly thanks to history and the gradual process of science. Back in the day, when a new bird was discovered, if it bared a passing resemblance to some already known bird, there was a fair chance they would get named after them. 
And back then, we had no way of really knowing if they were related or not. The American robin is named after the European robin because they kind of look similar. The Australian magpie is named after the European magpie because they kind of look similar. Over time, those names caught on and became what the bird was known as, even as science advanced and we gained a better understanding of the true relationship between different bird lineages. And today, the IOC has gifted us commandment number four. We don't like making changes unless we really have to. Which, for the most part, is probably a, a good call. The olive warbler was originally misidentified, but has been known by that name for hundreds of years. It would be more confusing to change it than keep it. So we keep it. But that does bring us back to honorific names and the way three of the commandments can conflict with each other. Namely, commandment four, we want to keep well-established names. Commandment six, we're willing to change offensive names. And commandment seven, honorary names are okay. Now, there are hundreds of birds who have honorary names, and the name almost always takes the possessive form. For example, Lyle's Wren, Abbott's Booby, Bonaparte's Goal, not named after Napoleon Bonaparte, but his nephew Charles Lucien Bonaparte, who was a famous ornithologist, but that's a story for another time, and of course, McCown's Long Spur. The impression, of course, being that the person owns the bird, which, you know, is kind of weird, and there are exceptions to that kind of style as well. The Victorian crowned pigeon is named after Queen Victoria. No possessive necessary, though. Now, in recent years, there has been a growing tension in the birding world as to just how appropriate this practice is. As you can imagine, the vast majority are named after European men. For the most part, the bird was nearly always known to the local people before the colonizing power arrived. Now, some people argue that the names are okay because they tell us something about the scientific history or the discovery of the bird, as McCown's Longspur does. But that isn't always the case. In fact, more often than not, the bird isn't named after the person who discovered or formally described it. More common, the person who discovered it named it after someone else as a gesture of goodwill. Stresman's Bristlefront is a good example. Listeners may remember Erwin Stresman from our Bird of Paradise episode, the ornithologist rock star. Yes, they exist. Well, he had nothing to do with this South American bird. Rather, the person who discovered it was an admirer of Stresman, thought he was a top bloke, and deserved to have his name hooked onto this bird. We also see this in a lot of the Birds of Paradise, who are named after European royalty. You remember the King of Saxony Bird of Paradise. Again, no possessive. They had nothing to do with the birds, it was pure pandering and politicking. Beyond that, there are other arguments that honorific names are less than useful. Most of the names we've looked at today at least attempt to tell us something about the bird. Where they can be found, what call they make, what colour they are. They're descriptive, they hold information. Honorific names don't do this. And even if you argue that the names are telling us something about history, often that history is obscure and difficult to track down, and then even when you do find the answer, it doesn't have anything to do with the bird anyway. Take, for example, Leech's Storm Petrel. To the layperson, the name Leech it doesn't mean anything, and it's only after you really go digging that you find out he was a marine biologist, quite a famous one actually, William Elford Leach. But 
he didn't have anything to do with the bird. It was named by Comrade Timonik, who himself has about ten birds named after him. There's a whole circle of honour going on. And maybe it's easy to justify a few people. People like Timonik, Stresman, John Gould also has many birds named after him. They all made huge contributions to the field of ornithology. You know, maybe it's okay for a few birds to be named after them. Although I'm not sure Timonik needs ten. But it starts becoming a problem when the person was of questionable repute, a la our old friend McCown. And you also don't have to hunt too hard to find more examples of dubious people being attached to birds. John Kirk Townsend was a famous American ornithologist who has two birds named after him, Townsend's Warbler and Townsend's Solitaire. But it turns out he desecrated American Indian barrel sites to collect skulls, so maybe not the greatest guy? And Rispolio's Taracco is named after Eugenio Rispolio, an Italian prince who did indeed discover that bird, but also either robbed or murdered every indigenous African he ran into while touring the continent. He was thankfully trampled to death by an elephant. Story for another time. And Taracos are amazing. They're the only bird that can produce a green pigment in their feathers. Every other bird uses the physics of bending light to create an optical illusion of green. Taracos are super cool, but, you know, they got a murderous racist's name attached to them. Look, maybe we can just be thankful that there aren't any birds named after Hitler. And I mean, I joke, but there is a beetle called Anthothalamus hitleri, which is currently under threat of extinction because Hitler enthusiasts keep trying to collect it. What a world we live in! But birds. We're talking about birds. Historically, attempts to change names have been met with stiff resistance, and we have Commandment 4 to thank for that. A previous push to have the Inca dove's name changed failed. Now, this dove has no association with the former Inca empire and doesn't live anywhere near where the empire used to exist. They don't even live on the same continent. The guy who named it was just straight up ignorant of the native people and figured, well, you're all basically the same, near enough is good enough, direct quote that. So why is the IOC so resistant to change? Well, from their perspective, they're less concerned with strict accuracy than they are with maintaining name consistency through time. For the IOC, even though the name is inaccurate, it is in common usage, it is the name people are familiar with. So in favour of maintaining stability, they rejected the name change request for that dove. They have previously stated that their body does not exist to pass moral judgment on names. If you make one exception, then where will the line of acceptability get drawn? It's a slippery slope, guys! And look, when all is said and done, the birds don't care what we call them. Gould's toucanet will keep doing its thing whether this brilliantly coloured miniature toucan from South America has the name of an English dude attached to it or not. The real question, though, comes down to what we value. When we continue to associate birds with these names, we perpetuate the practice of honouring colonising powers in foreign lands. And that's as a bare minimum, never mind if the person on the bird was actual trash as well. These names do nothing to help people better identify or learn about the birds while casting a shadow that legitimises a problematic past. 
There is, of course, a place to learn about the history of natural science, but I don't think having the name of a person on a bird is the best avenue to achieve that. But maybe times are changing. The American Ornithological Society accepted the petition to have McCown's longspur's name changed to be the thick-billed longspur. Following that decision, the Clements Checklist, which maintains eBird, changed the name, and the IOC has also agreed to update the name as well. The history of how this bird was discovered isn't going anywhere, but now we're free to appreciate it on its own merits and not those of some long-dead racist dude. In time, we will hopefully see some other birds with a problematic name get a rebranding. But while we wait, now you know something about the madness behind the method of how birds get their names. Next time, I might have something a little different for you. I don't want to give away just yet what it is, but I hope you'll tune in to hear what we got planned. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? And I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. I mean, if you don't lock your doors, I am going to come into your house brandishing a knife with a ream of bird pictures to show you. Like, probably. If I got time, I got a lot of other stuff to do as well.